welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Adams Morgan. Thrilled to be joined today by Chris Boustred, winemaker and director of South Africa's Remhooked Wine Estate. Chris's parents purchased the historic Stellenbosch Estate in 1994 and worked closely with famed flying winemaker Michel Roland to develop their brand. Chris graduated from Stellenbosch University with a degree in viticulture and enology and assumed winemaking duties from his father in 2007. After a period of working closely with Roland, he has charted his own course, developing a house style with values elegance over extraction and texture over ripeness for its own sake. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Thanks very much, Paul. Good to be here. A pleasure. <laughs> um, for those of you listening for the first time, premise here is blessedly simple. Uh, we each have a bottle to share, one with the other, and uh, we are devoting today's episode to that uniquely South African specialty, Pinotage. Chris has brought along a uh, bottle of his uh, estate, Pinotage, while I have followed suit with one of the country's most iconic uh, examples from the self-declared pioneers of Pinotage, Canonkop Wine Estate. I will taste through them both while riffing about life and wine along the way, and uh, then I'll close things out with a bit of verse dedicated to our guest. Uh, thanks again, Chris. Pleasure to have you cool. here, sir. Thanks, Paul. Um, before we dive into uh, the wines themselves, I just want to kind of uh, ask you a few questions about you know, how you came to the wine business, how your family came to the wine business in the first place. Um, how did yeah. you get involved uh, with wine in Stellenbosch? Your family's not originally from that area. No, no. So originally from Johannesburg, uh, my father sort of, yeah, he said it was his midlife crisis. He just wanted to go farming. I think it's something he wanted to do from, from a much younger age. He was a builder, so he built houses and uh, had a sort of a company that did that in Joburg. Um, yeah, he hit his 40, so he was 40 when, uh, when, we, when we moved down to the Cape, so my age now. And looking back, it's, I'm, I'm always just amazed at yeah, how brave he must have been to do that. Mm -hmm. It was uh, yeah, an incredible time, I think, in South Africa's history as well. You know, it was, we, we basically purchased just before Mandela was voted in, so before the ANC came into power, uh, the official end of, of kind of the apartheid government. So it was very uncertain times in South Africa yeah. uh, for a country. So, yeah, I think he was really brave to do that. Always loved wine. Um, so, yeah, that, obviously moving to a, going farming and, and making wine was a dream. And, uh, yeah, sold out in, in Johannesburg, uh, basically cashed out of everything, bought the farm, and, and the rest is history. What was it like for you moving from Johannesburg to Stellenbosch? How would you describe so, the difference between the two kind of areas? Yeah, chalk and cheese. Um, I think, uh, you know, Joburg is a big city. It's a real business hub. Yeah. Um, it, there's a lot happening, and it's really vibey, you know, landlocked. Um, I was... 12 when we moved down so okay. still really young yeah. so i mean i think we always laugh my my brother's biggest concern was that he was going to start listening to country music you know, coming from the city <laughs> is it there's south yeah. there's a south african country music genre no no okay there isn't so okay. it was a, yeah unfounded uh, fear okay but uh, no i mean i think it was you know for us being kids it was just amazing yeah moving out of the city onto a farm and uh, so yeah like for us, we were young. It was easy. Again, I think for my parents, the amount of, yeah, sort of, I think it was just really brave. 
to it was do a, that. It was an adventure for you, I imagine. Now, yes. uh, but it was, you know, backdropped with this, you know, epic historical, yeah. you know, change yes. um, for the sake of the life of your country. Yeah. Um, you know, what as a twelve-year-old, you know, kind of sense did you have of? Yeah you know, the fall of apartheid yeah. into, you know, the first multiracial democratic elections. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I, I, it was just incredibly uncertain. I mean, I remember watching, you know, when Mandela was released from prison and how everyone was sort of celebrating. And uh, I think, I know for my dad, like all his friends told him he's crazy, you know, don't buy a farm now. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it was really, I think, I was young, so I think didn't have much of an idea of what was, what was really going on. But uh, for him, you know, his friends saying he's mad, you know, we didn't know if we were going to be able to stay on in South Africa. We didn't know if there was going to be war. We were just so privileged to have a person like Nelson Mandela. Did to you come grow into up power. in a, in a multiracial environment in Joburg before no. you came to? No, no, no. no. And I, I think that's, you know, one of the, with the things with apartheid is, is it was, we were segregated. I think we didn't know. You know, there yeah. was, you know, stuff was kind of, the, the media was controlled. There was a, you know, a lot of stuff happening, obviously, behind the scenes that we, we didn't know about. But, uh, yeah, I mean, at school, I, I wasn't with, it wasn't a multiracial school yeah. in Joburg. And, uh, yeah, amazing to see the change now with my kids where, you know, probably 40 or 50% of the class down in in uh, in the schools that they go to now is it's it's multiracial. So it's, yeah, and you were you telling know, me to go to much, a, yeah, it's, they go to a public school in Stellenbosch. It's yeah. much more representative of uh, still not completely representative because yeah. you know. But I, I think uh, yeah, it's amazing to see where South Africa has come. But uh, yeah, it was I think early nineties were pretty uncertain times for for the country. We we're just ama amazing to get a leader like. Nelson Mandela coming out. And, and demographically, those are very yeah. different areas, are they not? Johannesburg yes. yeah. and, and so much. And, and this is something I actually didn't have a full sense of until yeah. you talked about it, but um, apartheid didn't divide the population merely into white and black South African. There are other dividing lines uh, imposed yes. as well. Yes. No, I mean, it was predominantly white and black. I yeah. think that was, you know, we had in apartheid, they had homelands, which is where they relocated a lot of the black population to. But like the Western Cape, uh, which is obviously where we are now, is traditionally, I mean, historically, an area where the Khoisan uh, inhabited, who were kind of a more nomadic yeah. tribe. Um, and they, to this day, they, they speak Afrikaans. Uh, they were actually quite sort of close to the apartheid government um, and, and looked after by that, I think maybe because they spoke Afrikaans. And they were labeled as a different demographic, right? Yeah, so different demographic. So, I mean, South Africa, 11 official languages, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, the, it's incredibly diverse. I mean, if you, the, so the, the lines between, you know, there's, there's obviously uh, different tribes within South Africa. Um, so it's not just black and white. There yeah. are obviously, obviously difference, differences in that as well, yeah. Now, um, going from Joburg, growing up on uh, a winery yeah. after the age of 12, did you always have a sense of wanting to go into that line of work yourself? Yeah, not at all. No. no. I mean, I, I think one of the things I think that was great, you know, you know wine is wine. You, you've, got to, you've got to love it to do it. You know, you, it's not something that I think you can get into and, and want to make a success of it if, if you don't love it. And I think that my parents knew that. Um, there was never pressure on me, my brother, or my sister mm -hmm. to to come back into the business. 
I was signed up for business science at the University of Cape Town when I finished school. I oh, so you were ready to, you know... Go in a different direction. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, and then I went, I, I finished school, uh, and then I went and worked in, um, just outside Amsterdam, in the flower auction houses there. So I spent, oh, wild. A, spent, spent a couple of months there. And while what was I that was, like? That was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I just, I just yeah. picture, I picture the, so, so my flower market associations are like, walking around New York City at like three o'clock and all the flower vendors are out. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's actually, yeah, I mean, that was cool. It's the biggest undercover building in Europe and basically the entire flower, all, all of Europe's imported flowers come through there. So it was an amazing place to see, but while yeah. I was there and working there, I yeah, changed my mind. I wanted to do something, uh, I just felt, yeah, I wanted to do something more practical, something outdoors and obviously with uh, having been on a wine farm and been farming, I, I wanted to go in that line. So I signed up for, luckily managed to change and signed up for uh, BSc to a Bachelor of Science at Stellenbosch University. You know, BSc is generally quite broad, so I wasn't still wasn't sure that I wanted to go in the wine direction. But uh, yeah, so changed changed course while I was there. And was that uh, instruction mostly academic for the sake of analyzing wines? You know, was it like yeah. kind of the UC Davis system or was it more, you know, European for the sake of active work in the vineyard as well? No, so it's, it, so the, in, in Stellenbosch, I mean, so Stellenbosch University is the only place you can study wine in South Africa yeah. um, or viticulture and enology, but there's Stellenbosch University and then there is Elsenburg Agricultural College, which is also in Stellenbosch. And... Tradition, it's evolved a little bit now, but Stellenbosch is known for being very academic, the university, where um, Elsenburg is practical. Yeah. So a lot of winemakers, they actually want to employ people from Elsenburg because they've got the practical experience. But uh, yeah, I mean, two very different courses, but I think the, with Stellenbosch, the, I, I feel the, you know, the um, academic background is important. Yeah. Uh, it's an important base but that's not where you learn. You yeah. learn when you're working, so, yeah. So your family hired a hugely famous flying winemaker, the original flying winemaker, yeah. uh, Michel Roland, uh, to kind of help them refurbish uh, the estate, refurbish yeah. the winemaking, and you kind of went through your own personal uh, yeah. Roland, you know, mentorship program for the sake yeah. of working at a bunch of his properties around the world. Did you not? Yeah, I had a massive, massive privilege to be able to work with him. So we didn't hire him. We couldn't afford him. Oh, I didn't you know, know that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we were, um, we we're a small family-owned oh, operation. He had a stake in the... Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so so yeah. We, basically, we used to sell fruit. Um, my dad made a couple of barrels when he started. Yeah. And it was mainly farming and then selling the grapes. And uh, we sold... Uh, a majority of our fruit to uh, Rupert and Rothschild, which is a, a partnership between the Ruperts, who are South African, and the Rothschilds, obviously French, just down the road from us. And Michelle used to do all of their blending. Yeah. Um, and uh, in doing the blending, he tasted Merlots in particular that came from our vineyards, obviously yeah. making up the blends, really liked the, the wines, uh, came to come and see the vineyards and got on very well with my dad. And yeah. uh, so he actually bought into our cellar so we uh, created two companies. So we had the farm and the cellar, and he bought into the cellar. Oh, fascinating. And uh, we, with the idea of basically a partnership, and we made wine with him, uh, first vintage in 2002. So, so uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the name Michel Roland, yeah. um, he is a hugely controversial figure uh, in the fine wine world. Uh, for the sake of his supporters, uh, he is lauded for uh, kind of, 
restoring Bordeaux's reputation and uh, pushing uh, a variety of sellers around the world to modernize their operations and make, you know, more um, kind of flavorful uh, fruit forward sort of wines uh, to his detractors. Um, uh, he was famously profiled in a, a 2004 documentary called Amando Vino. Um, he has run roughshod over local um, uh, traditions and essentially makes one wine around the globe um, and is this, you know, kind of anti-pope-like figure um, uh, for the sake of people that value, you know, typicity and, and, and point of place in wine. Uh, the truth as ever uh, is somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in between. Um, uh, I find your experience hugely fascinating because, you know, uh, in talking about him yesterday, you were quick to point out how much you learned from him. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, how do you feel like he changed your winemaking for the better? So, uh, vineyard focus, absolutely. And I think that's when, when he came to the farm, you know, he, he loved the wines, but his, his first, first thing he looked at was the vineyards. And uh, so, so anyone can say anything, any winemaker can say what they want, but great wines are grown. And I think... Uh, so that, that was part of it. Then uh, when we built the new cellar um, with him, uh, we had one of his, August Nutter, but one of the guys that worked for him come over for the first few harvests, and uh, he started with spontaneous ferments, so uninoculated. I think contrary to what a lot of people think of Michelle, we actually started doing less. So much, you know, no acid adjustments, uninoculated ferments, um, yeah, unfined, basically just... Yeah. yeah, going going from vineyard to bottle with as little influence, well, little kind of interference as possible, which I think is contrary to what a lot of people imagine yeah, of him. Imagine of him. Yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, you know, so Michel famously grew up uh, in Pomerol and is yeah. a, a um, Merlot uh, yeah. devotee. You were saying he he says of his birth. Yeah, he was born under the under the leaf of a Merlot vine. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And. Um, <laughs> You know, Merlot became quickly specialty um, yeah. uh, for your dad. Yes. And how did those Merlots change? You know, how did the style evolve for the sake of what ended up in the glass? Yeah, so I think um, Michelle's known for going, uh, for picking a little riper. And uh, I think, you know, what when we, having started working with him, we definitely started picking a little later, going for slightly bigger styles um, and slightly riper styles. So... Mm -hmm. You know, I think my, my goal nowadays, I suppose we'll get onto it a little later, is to, to make more wines like my dad was making in the 90s, yeah. so before, before that involvement. But uh, yeah, just, just basically going for a little bit more ripeness. Uh, you get plusher fruit, sort of bigger, rounder wines, which, uh, yeah, some people like, and they definitely have their place. Yeah, I, I always find that interesting. It's like, so, you know, you had a house style that yeah. your dad, you know, established. Yes. How did, you know, your fans respond to you know, kind of the new Remhot. Yeah, so I mean, so everything changed. So when we started with Michelle in 2002, we changed from doing uh, varietal cab, varietal Merlot, and varietal Pinotage to doing three blends. So the whole sort of, uh, yeah, so I suppose our brand changed, the, the wines we were making changed. And I think it was a lot, you know, we were, my dad wasn't a qualified winemaker. Just uh -huh. loved farming and loved wines. And, uh, you know, we had Michelle come in. And he's obviously got all the expertise, experience. And so we basically, yeah, moved into partnership and, and changed a lot of the things. And I think uh, the, the wines were generally well-received. But yeah. I think it was also, you know, at the time, I think there was a, a style that was really appreciated. And uh, we moved to making that. 
and uh, yeah, so I, I suppose not too much changed, but I think I think we are. We I think we would be a lot further than what we are if we'd sort of continued with some of what my oh, dad was doing. Oh, yeah. fascinating. So, so you, feel, yeah. um, you feel like you've lost a little bit for the sake yeah, of... Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of like consistency and wine and I mean like what we do, I think, uh, I think we did. It, it, it just, stuff changed so much for yeah. that period of time. But uh, it was a massive privilege for I do, us. and I, I equally feel like, you know, sometimes, especially given that your dad didn't have... Uh, you know, academic background in winemaking. Sometimes yes. you need how to, you need to understand what you don't want to do mm. um, before you can chart your chart your own course. Absolutely, and, I think I think I think one of the and sometimes that's that can be more important yeah. than you know continuity at times. Yeah, absolutely, and that's wine. Eh? I think one of the things that Michelle said to my dad. I remember my dad saying, "Look, the wines aren't selling fast enough," and he said, "Don't worry, Murray, it'll all be all right. The wine industry, you only struggle for the first hundred years." <laughs> and then it, you know, and then it, uh, then it gets easier. So that's, that's awesome. So that's it. Eh? I that's, mean, I that's think so. That's so French. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I, but I think that's the way we got to look at it. I yeah. mean, you know, we we planting vines now, that I'm making wines from vineyards my dad planted. We planting vines now that, you know, like our Shannon vineyard that we've just planted, I'll be in my seventies by the time it's giving us honey bunch quality. Yeah. So you know you. You've got to have a long-term kind of outlook, which I think he is something he brought, which yeah. he didn't have. You know, yeah. especially in this day and age where everything's so, like here and now, it's got to you know work straight away. You know, wine is a is a process, and uh, yeah. So let's let's talk pinotage and let's cool. kind of talk you know your evolution uh, yes. as a winemaker, and yeah. you know you had this you know style that you had kind of adopted, and and yeah. you have subsequently by your own admission moved away from. Yes. Um, so Pinotage for the uninitiated is uniquely South African. It was developed at uh, University of Stellenbosch. Yes. Um, uh, first uh, as a crossing in 1924, yeah. um, and uh, and then subsequently propagated throughout uh, the region. It is a cross of kind of two unlikely grapes. I mean, you have a lot of that in the, in the wine world. So I mean, like. Um, you know, you, you think about something like Cabernet Sauvignon is itself the offspring of Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. You know, those are, those yeah. are strange bedfellows. Absolutely. Um, uh, Pinotage is the offspring of Pinot Noir and Sanso, yes. um, which at the time locally was called Hermitage. Yes. So hence the uh, Pinotage yeah. uh, for, the, for the sake of uh, the name. I would, I would never think to cross uh, yeah. Pinot Noir and Sanso. So it is a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. I think no one knows exactly why... It was crossed, yeah. Um, but it was obviously just experimenting, and and uh, so yeah, crossed in the 1920s, and it was a flower crossing. So, like you say, uh, you know, when you with with Cabernet Sauvignon being uh, Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc, you you when you do a flower crossing, you're not sure what you're going to get. So you oh, don't yeah. you don't necessarily get you know traits from you both get the parents. Things. Yeah, you get yeah. you get a completely different yeah, yeah. varietal, and uh, but I mean we like to think you know Pinot Noir. And since so, you know, you, the kind of earthiness and savory notes of, of Pinot Noir with the kind of juiciness of Sinso. And uh, I think that's kind of inspiring some of, the, some of my contemporaries, the younger generation of winemakers and, and what they are yeah. doing with Pinotage. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, it's fascinating to hear you talk about how you work with a scrape in the vineyard. So yeah. uh, Sinso is most famous as source material for... Provencal rosés, yes. um, and it thrives in hotter environments. Uh, it is yeah. it is very productive, and yeah. uh, as kind of a 
um, a way to limit its yields often uh, in the Southern Rhone and, and, and yeah. with Pinotage as well, you work with bush vines. Yes, absolutely. So, so Pinotage um, is a, it's a challenging varietal to work with. It's got a, yeah, I mean, like doing tastings over here in the US, I think, uh, you know, it seems like everyone's had a bad Pinotage or a yeah. bad experience with Pinotage. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a, as a, it's a result of, you know, a, a lot of it's got to do with viticulture. And it's a very early ripener. So it's the first grapes we pick before our Shenan, um, before anything else. And because of that, you don't get a lot of hang time. Uh, so you tend to get, if you don't manage the vineyards properly, you get a big unripe element of fruit or of grapes coming through in the wine. And it tends to give it this kind of smoky uh, character or this burnt character, which a lot of people have spoken about. Yeah, like about. burnt rubber. Yeah, burnt rubber. And uh, so by working with bush vines, you've got uh, naturally limited yields. So you're not, uh, it's difficult to overcrop bush vines. And then also, I, I like to think it's, it's, you know, a bit of the Chateauneuf story, but, you know, with the soils, with bush vines, with the grapes hanging closer to the soil, you obviously have the soils warming up in the day, and then, uh, you know, at night they radiate that heat, keep the bunches a little warmer, so your diurnal uh, sort of temperature range is, is much narrower. Yeah. Uh, where with a trellised vineyard, obviously all the airflow going underneath, you get much more cooling, much more of a cooling effect in the bunch zone at night. So it kind of it sort of accelerates the ripening process a, yeah. a little bit. But uh, yeah, you've got to work carefully in the vineyards. You know, we do a big green harvest at Verazon, so remove fruit that is behind in terms of ripeness when they start uh, changing colour. Yeah. And uh, just kind of bring that that uh, sort of ripeness uh, sort of spread together to ensure that when we pick, everything is evenly ripe uh, and eliminate that unripe element. So you said when you're working with Michelle, you're using yeah. Pinotage more as a blending agent then? Yes, blending components. Interesting. So we were just doing blends. Yeah. So, and that's one of the, I think one of the cool things, you know, with Michelle, our first, so we made a wine called Bon Nouvelle, uh, or Good News, and uh, the first vintage was 2002, and from the first vintage, it was Merlot-driven, with a little bit of cab, and he always added pinotage. Interesting. Which I think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what inspired you to kind of change course and work with pinotage as a solo entity? So it was actually, uh, we, when we, we got to 2008 and uh, sort of parted ways with, uh, with Michelle, um, I came back, my brother wanted to come back, he just to sort of bring the business back into the family, and uh, it was actually with our... Belgian agent, I was tasting through barrels, and he said, oh, you've got to start your Pinotage again. And, you know, we were tasting, we, I mean, we tasted through some of the, the 95, 97, I think, were the two vintages that oh, so really wild me. Those would have been uh, vintages that, that your dad worked that on my without, dad uh, yeah. without and, Michelle's and input. Just, yeah, they were still still drinking beautifully, yeah. you know. And uh, so, yeah, we wanted to do a varietal Pinotage. It's, it's, the, it's the South African grape. Yeah, uh, we've got this beautiful old vineyard, and uh, we wanted to showcase Pinotage on its own. Yeah. So uh, yeah. And and how do you work with it? Um, we're we're tasting two wines here for the sake of uh, I brought Cannon Cup. Uh, it should be said, Cannon Cup is they call themselves pioneers of Pinotage, yes. and, and and rightfully so. It was one of the estates in Stellenbosch where this grape um, was first planted. It was certainly uh, the estate where, um, internationally, uh, this, this, uh, yeah. um, grape first came to the attention of a broader drinking audience. And, and to this day, they make some of the most famous, uh, yes. Pinotage in the world. Uh, yeah. they really stake their claim to it. Um, you know, how do these two wines differ? Stylistically? Yeah, so, so I think, I mean, they, they probably, 
two or three farms away from us. So as the yeah. crow flies, a couple of miles. So really close. Um, I think in terms of style, you know, with, with Pinotage, there's kind of, I, I, I like to think there's two ways, but there's a lot more now, you know, with guys doing carbonic and, and really, yeah, I mean, really like, pushing like, the envelope. For the sake of archetypes, though, yeah, it's, sometimes yeah. it's helpful so, to talk so, so, so traditionally, Pinotage, because it's a grape that, uh, that you struggle to ripen or, or to get even ripeness, you, you push it a little further. So pick it a little riper, work it really hard. So you'll do, you know, uh, six, between four and six punch downs or pump overs a day. So really extract as much as you can and then press it off bef just before it's dry because uh, it can tend to go a little bitter if you leave it too long. And then go to a lot of new oak. And uh, that's, I think, the kind of what the style that is, that is sort of commanding prices for Pinotage at the moment. But uh, you go, yeah, so big extract, a little more new oak, and you get these nice plush, uh, sort of juicy, kind of more weighty styles. Yeah, so that, that yeah. is very much the Kennecop. And, and yes. I think this is, um, you know, the Pinotage of popular imagination to yes. the extent that there is such a thing. But yeah. um, in terms of methodology here, um, you have the wine uh, fermented in open vessels. They're punching it down regularly. Punching down refers to submerging uh, the cap that yeah. floats to the top during fermentation. And that's a very, it can be kind of a very violent way to, to work yeah. with fruit, but um, you get a lot of extraction of, of yeah. color and phenolics out of the grapes for the sake of it. And uh, this wine then, uh, so 2019, spends uh, 16 months in 80% uh, new uh, barrique. Um, uh, the remaining 20% is in second fill, yeah. <laughs> French, <Yeah>. French, French <laughs> barrique. So, um, uh, yeah, a lot of oak, a uh, lot of extraction. Um, you know, a lot of big, jammy, full fruitedness. Yeah. Um, not a lot of, you know, it should be said it's a well-made wine, not a lot of, um, you know, burnt rubber mm. or, you know, like, yeah. you know, it, it's actually very far from that. And yeah. I think, you know, for people that haven't tried well-made Pinotage of this ilk before, the pleasant surprise is that it delivers a lot of fruit. Yes. The texture is, is very enveloping and it yeah. can be very velvety. So... The tannins are relatively mellow, but present. Um, uh, and then the acid is bright. Yeah, great um, acidity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, it delivers a lot of things consumers like. Um, yes. Just in an unexpected package for the sake yes. of, you know, something they think they shouldn't like in Pinotage. Yeah. Uh, your wine's very different, though. Yes. Um, what accounts for that difference? So I think, uh, you know, with ours, I, I go, um, I, we, we, one of our, we believe wines, uh, made in the vineyard we, we think we've got amazing sites what we, we want you to taste in the glass is is what we get out of the vineyard so we really believe in minimal intervention um so we harvest i'm very gentle with the fruit we'll do one to two actions a day not necessarily punch downs usually in the early in the ferment we'll do a punch down and then a pump over in a day and then we do longer time on the skins um so a bit more of an extended maceration as opposed to pressing and what does that what does that give you um i think you obviously you you extracting tannin, but at, at much more gently. Um, I think it gives you a slightly more savoury finish. You know, you get uh, some some kind of slightly, I suppose, drier tannins uh, coming through. But uh, also, to me, to me, there's just like yeah. really like a lovely herbaceousness about yes. this wine that gets lost when you're, you know, yeah. When I mean, oak is a loud voice for the sake of winemaking, especially new oak, and and you know. Um, 
this was just a, a different a different kind of entity, and, and yeah. I find that like savoriness uh, for yes. the sake of this wine really really yes. um, beguiling. Yeah, I think I think with us, I mean, I, like on our, I think the fruit profile on ours is is quite different. You know, I think we get more kind of sour cherries and strawberries. There's like a a, a fresher fruit, um, and yeah, again, we, picking a little earlier, like getting a little bit, you know, nice nice fresh acidity, and then I think that. For me, the, the extended maceration just brings kind of breadth to the palate. So you get a really, you know, it hits, the tannins hit everywhere. It's very broad. And uh, then again, yeah, I suppose a little more savory. But um, yeah, makes, it's, it's a style I like to drink. So, yeah. yeah. What, do you, what do you like about Pinotage uh, as a grape? Yeah. What do you like about working with it? So I, 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 first of all, I love the fact that it's unique and we've got something that we can do that is unique. That's and distinctively then, and then South African. As, yeah. And yeah. then as far as wines, you know, I think it's, it's South Africa's wild child. Eh? You know, it's, uh, it's quite, it's, it's obviously very versatile in terms of how you can make it. But, you know, I think the style we make is, you know, there's an earthiness, there's a wildness to it. And uh, it's, it's just an interesting wine. Yeah, you know? it's interesting. Uh, People talk a lot about um, this famous French tasting note, Garrigue, yeah. uh, in the southern Mediterranean uh, yeah. regions of France. Garrigue is the smell of dried herbs trampled yes. underfoot, which is yeah. just lovely and evocative. Pinot doesn't do Garrigue. Pinot is, you know, it can do earth. Yes. You know, it can do like loamy, wet earth and mushrooms yes. and stuff like that, but it doesn't do, you know, that same you know, kind of dried herbal thing, uh, yes. and so can. Yes. And so, you know, for me, this, this has some of that, you know, velvety uh, allure you get from, you know, the, you know, the sophistication of a Pinot Noir, but coupled yeah. with, you know, that, that scrubland, that bushland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And something about the, you know, the scrub, the bushland feels, you know, it feels very cape, uh, yes. I, I guess, in, yeah. in a cool way. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it goes with the food that we, uh, that we you know, like traditionally, South Africa was, or Cape Town was obviously the halfway stop-off point on the spice route. So there's a big kind of curry influence in a lot of the dishes we make. Like we have babwiti, which is a sort of a curried mince. We do a lot of poikis, which means uh, it's like a small cast iron pot that we put on the fire. Oh, cool. And then uh, work with curry spices in those as well. And for me, you know, pinotage goes with that. It's a, it's a really fun wine to pair. And that crushed, I think the, the sort of crushed herbs, so it's like a, it's a pleasant green. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, quite yeah. typical of the Simonsberg, which is the mountain that we're on, so the area we're in. So I like to think you, there is a line of that through all of our wines, and I think by going a little leaner, you know, uh, looking for a little freshness, you're able to accentuate that, and I think it brings a real sense of identity. Yeah, I, yeah. I equally find uh, Pinotage fascinating um, for the sake of the modern history of, of South Africa's wine industry. Mm. Uh, you come from a historic family yourself, mm. the Kulinins. Um, I, was, I was actually kind of surprised in talking to you yesterday. Uh, you didn't grow up in an Afrikaans-speaking household. Uh, you no, an English, yeah. English-speaking household. So, so South Africa, I mean, people say it's diverse, but I think everyone has no idea. I think anyone that's, I suppose it's similar to the U.S. in that uh, as, as a white South African, anyone that's been there more than kind of five or six generations is a very big mixture of, because we got colonized by everyone pretty much, mm -hmm. you know, like we had the Dutch, well, Portuguese first, actually, uh, the Dutch, French, uh, you know, it was people from everywhere. 
But uh, yeah, well, I think people underestimate the extent to which you had people moving freely within those empires. So yes. it wasn't it wasn't yeah. only you know white imperials. You also had yes. you know a lot of people from the subcontinent coming yeah. to, to South Africa. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So obviously being on the spice route. So yeah. we've got a very big Indian population. Um, but yeah, so there's a real Malay influence. Oh, you I didn't know, realize especially that. in the Cape. And uh, so yeah, it's it's diverse. Yeah. I think to say to say the least. But yeah, my family depending which kind of branch you run up. Uh, so Thomas Kalinan was our great-great-grandfather. He actually came out to South Africa with, uh, with his parents from Ireland and uh, settled in Johannesburg, which is where my family's originally from. And he was a builder as well, like my dad. And uh, he had a passion for kind of yeah, geology, semi-precious stones. He used to collect them. That was his hobby, polish mm -hmm. them up. We still have a lot of them today. And riding out on his horse, he actually found a volcanic chute uh, just outside Joburg, where there's a little town called Cullinan today. I didn't realize and, that. Yeah, ended up he actually bought the small holding from the from the farmer who or the farm that it was after on. much cajoling. Yeah, after much cajoling, yes. and uh, yeah, it, it mostly the benevolent cajoling. Not yeah, like so a, it was actually he tried to buy it from uh, from the the farmer the farm, the guy who he bought it from. His dad, he didn't want to sell ended up buying it from his son and uh, started the mine. And in, yeah. yeah, we were, that was when South Africa was in the process of gaining our independence from the UK. And he found in 1903 at the mine, they found the, the biggest uncut diamond that had ever been found. It's not the biggest anymore, but it's still the most valuable in terms of clarity and cut. Yeah. But we were obviously in the process of gaining our independence. The, the Transvaal government at the time, so the government at the time, it was such a unique find. They told him they're going to buy it from him, but they paid him a tenth of what it was worth and then taxed it. So he basically got nothing for it, but they gifted it to the king at the time as a parting gift to say thank you for giving us our independence. And uh, they, the, royal, the, the British royal family, they then cut it into two main stones and a lot of smaller stones Yeah, smaller it's actually, it's a fun, well. it is a fun uh, uh, Wikipedia yeah. black hole. Uh, yes. The, the yeah. life of the Cullinan... Yeah. Uh, uh, diamond and uh, it adorns the royal crown and the royal. The, actually, the biggest stone uh, adorns the royal scepter, yes. which had to be um, redesigned to accommodate it. And yeah. uh, it's it's fascinating to me, hugely fascinating to understand the way that all of this shakes down. So, uh, in yeah. a contemporary context now, the uh, there are a lot of South Africans advocating for the return of uh, of those stones yeah. uh, in in a modern era. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, for yeah. the sake of the other wine we're drinking, uh, Ken Cup comes from a uh, predominant Afrikaans uh, family. And uh, I find this wine really fascinating for the sake of its place in um, South African history uh, uh, for better and at times for worse. So this is a historic estate. Uh, it uh, belonged to originally and uh, was developed by uh, Paul Sauer. Uh, on the Cannon Cup website, he is cited as a man who uh, made his mark in various ways, perhaps most famously as a politician who served in the South African Parliament for 41 consecutive years from 1929 to 1970. Uh, he is equally um, cited uh, for his contributions to South African viticulture and particularly uh, in introducing uh, Pinotage uh, to um, a broader audience and to the country. Now, um, equally significant. Uh, this is a, from an article, uh, this is fascinating, uh, New York Times dated April 16th, 
1960, and uh, the article is a, a man in the news profile. Uh, it's called Apartheid's Promoter. Minister of Lands Paul Oliver Sauer is known as a genial bon vivant. Uh, that is the uh, winemaker um, of um, Kennecott fame, uh, Paul Sauer. He is also the man who first popularized the word apartheid uh, as the label for South Africa's racial segregation policies. So here in one wine, essentially, you have um, the whole of contemporary South African history uh, yeah. when it comes to um, a country finding its own identity yeah. for the sake of wine, but in the midst of a system which uh, denies um, political agency um, yeah. and reinforces institutional racism on the bulk of its population. Yeah. That is a lot to come to terms with. Yeah. Um, how do you in the wine industry um, as a white South African yes. um, come to terms with that? Yeah, so I think it's a history we are... Yeah, trying hard to address, you know, it's a, it's a real blotch or sort of stain on our industry. No, but I think it's, and, I, it's, uh, it's more than that, though. I think, yeah. I think you know, it, I, I, we were talking about this before the broadcast, and yes. um, I think about it in the context of our city. Uh, um, yeah. uh, I visited Mount Vernon a lot over um, uh, pandemic because it's outdoors, you can take the dog there. Yeah. It's just a fun thing to do. And, and uh, you didn't know Mount Vernon's history, which I thought yeah. was kind of fascinating. So for the uninitiated, um, if we have any inter international yeah. <laughs> listeners yet, uh, Mount Vernon is George Washington's estate. Yeah. Um, and George Washington uh, represented the minority of people living on the Mount Vernon estate. Uh, he, he had, at his death, over 300 yeah. slaves. And Mount Vernon is just beginning to tell uh, the story of the mass of men who yeah. lived and worked and died there. Uh, they refurbished... Uh, some of the slave dwellings in, in 2010, and they're doing a much better job uh, than they have historically of promoting that narrative. But, you know, it speaks to me for the sake of, you know, truth-telling, and I, I think the stories you tell yourself as a country um, yeah. have this really significant effect for, you know, what you do with all that baggage in, in you know, in kind of real time. Yeah, so, I mean... So as a, from a winemaking side, I think it set, back, it set the country back, apartheid set the country well, you back. Well, you had a shitty co-op. Yeah, so every, everything was kind of cooperatively produced. Um, it was only really in the 80s that we started seeing independent producers emerging. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean... And Kennecop was really so, one, of the, yeah. one of the first. And, yeah, Kennecop, um, um, I know the Hamilton Russells were, were very uh, sort of instrumental in that as well. But... Uh, yeah, they, I mean, there were a couple of smaller independent producers, but it, it was almost non-existent. Wines weren't really, we, we didn't see international wines, winemakers didn't travel. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of the reason, you know, in the last two, three decades, maybe two decades, that, that wine, South African wine has come as far as it has, and yeah. as quickly as it has. It's just, you know, we've suddenly opened up. But so from a wine side, there's obviously, there was that. Uh, but then, from a, you know, from a cultural side, it was. It's. It's. I think uh, large. The majority of the population has been excluded from, uh, from sort of farming and I suppose the wine industry. I mean, yeah. traditionally, our area is definitely more uh, was populated by the Khoisan. Uh, so the sort of the, and in, the in people the, that are... In the apartheid system, they were called colored South Africans. Were yes, they yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. It differentiated from, uh, from black South Africans. Is, is that so. a distinction that, you know, they tend to perpetuate yes, to this day? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a... I mean, the colored people uh, that, that sort of... They're probably the majority in the Western Cape uh, are Afrikaans-speaking. 
and uh, yeah, they, they are most of the people that, that we work with on the farms. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and, uh, great people. But I mean, again, that's South Africa. You know, depending on where you are, it's a different kind of la different language, yeah. different uh, kind of origins. They they identify as a you know as as their own sort yeah. of people. I I find wow. the question of like who is actually making the wine really fascinating. Yeah. In in the wine business, people talk a lot about environmental sustainability, but this yes. question of who's picking the grapes, who is, yes. you know, bringing the wine, who's actually delivering the wine to the table, yeah. doesn't get addressed as much. Um, Absolutely. Who, who actually brings these two pinotages yeah. to our table? So, so we're, a, um, I think we're, so we're small. We've got about uh, 60 acres of vineyards. Yeah. And we have five families that live on the farm. That Most of them have been on the farm since we moved onto the farm. So, did, they, yeah. so they, did they come with the estate to some, so, to some well, extent? So we, yeah, my dad purchased the farm yeah. uh, and, and these families were living on the farm already. So we've got a lot of second generation, a couple of third that are actually working on the farm and uh, it's a real sort of family vibe, you know? Yeah. So we do everything in-house. We don't, uh, yeah, we don't use contract workers and uh, I think that adds to the kind of feel and the, um, the, the, the end, Quality, you know, everyone has got a vested interest. And uh, are they white South Africans? Or are they Khoisan? What's they the... are colored South Africans, yeah. and uh, so all Afrikaans speaking. So I have to speak Afrikaans at work. Oh, fascinating! I, I usually get laughed at because my Afrikaans <laughs> isn't very good. But uh, yeah, they are colored South Africans. So my assistant in the cellar as well, and uh, yeah, the guys that drive the tractors, do the picking. It's a, it's a, yeah, a, a great team. But that but, is, that is, but we're very hands-on. I mean, we're small there, yeah. eh? so I think. You know, me, my brother, my sister's also involved in the farm. So it is a, yeah, it's a real team effort. But that is, that is quite a gift to have yeah. a year-round um, agricultural crew. Yes. You know, for the sake of most wine estates, um, you know, there are a few people, you know, a handful of people that will work yeah. the vineyards during the year. And then you have this massive need for yeah. additional hands at harvest. Exactly. Um, you yeah. know, you're, you're working with a different model, which is kind of yeah. cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it costs us a lot more. It does. Yeah. Because you, you're keeping a whole team busy year round. Even how do when, you, how are you able to sustain that? So we, we work harder <laughs> when, uh, when it's crunch time. Yeah. And then uh, in quieter times, you know, we keep, it means everybody does everything. Yeah. So, you know, like from bottling, room packing, tasting room, um, yeah, sowing cover crops, yeah. you know, everything. We, you, we you obviously have everyone doing a lot, doing a lot of different jobs instead of one, one sort of team coming in, doing one job and then leaving. It's, uh, so I think that also, it also keeps it interesting for everyone working there. You yeah. know, you're not just doing one thing, you, you sort of involved in all aspects. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like yeah. uh, stateside, the racial politics for that yeah. are, are very, are very different. Um, yes. But you know, they are nonetheless racial, and, and they yeah. have a lot to do in linguistic and cultural uh, yeah. with um, typically Mexican migrant labor yes. um, uh, and you know white white vineyard owners. And yeah. um, a lot of that has to do uh, with seasonal pickers. Yes. Um, and you know, the mass of wineries that I have worked on, yeah. um, you know, work with people on temporary visas uh, who come yes. up for harvest and, you know, when they need uh, handpicking, yeah. do, the, do the most of it. Uh, the one estate I can think of that yeah. is able to sustain the model that you um, have sustained yeah. is uh, in the Finger Lakes, and they're able to do it because they have a nursery. Okay. Um, so they, they sustain it for the sake of the nursery and the rest yeah. of the year. But the cool thing for their sake is that they have these expert hands yeah. when it comes to harvest in particular. Absolutely. And, and watching a crew like that go through over yeah. harvest or go through for the sake of pruning it is 
just obscene. Yeah. Uh, the the level of efficiency is just ridiculous. Yeah. Like the time it would take me to do what, what they do is yes. it's just it's it's maddening. Yeah. No, I mean it's amazing. I mean, like I've, I have I've worked in I worked in Napa and I've uh, there's obviously a lot of farms in South Africa also the the much bigger places yeah. that that will use a lot more contract teams. But it, it, like you say, I mean there's always a lot of focus on on harvest time and harvesting yeah. the grapes, but that's a tiny part of the process, you know. When you, Absolutely. I, for me, pruning is almost the most important and having a team that knows what they're doing, that are not just coming in to get the job done as quickly as possible, you know, that actually care about each vine, it's, it's invaluable. So although it may cost a little more, it's, uh, yeah, it's worth every, every penny. Now, you, you might not be able to answer this question, but, you know, yeah. um, your family took over the estate. They're working with a lot of people that have, you know, worked the lands for multiple generations. Mm. How have you know, their expectations of their work um, mm. and, you know, the wine industry changed uh, over the course of your stewardship. Yeah, you mean the, the team that yeah. the, on the yeah, farm? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, get, like basically you, don't, you get a lot of the youngsters, we, we, we want them to, to sort of expand their horizons, you know, and like yeah. move off the farm and, and get jobs elsewhere, like do, do what they want to do. There are certainly you know? easier ways so, to earn a living. Yeah, well... You, they are and they aren't. I mean, I think it's a it's an amazing life on the farm. You know, yeah. we we've got so I do have the the youngsters that have come through are, are now all either in the cellar or tractor drivers. You know, so definitely more sort of higher positions. But uh, there are a lot that I mean, we work with uh, a company called the Pebbles Project, which so we have a a preschool on the farm and an after school. Oh, wild. Um, that services only your... Um... They do a couple of farms oh, in, that's really in cool. South Africa. So they're, they're an amazing uh, sort of non-profit. Oh, and, that's awesome. Uh, they take our uh, take all the farm kids surfing uh, sort of at least once a week. That appeals to you as a is, surfer. Well, yeah, they, they surf <laughs> more than I do now. So, no, no. So they are, I mean, we obviously, we, we want just to get the, the youngsters the best education possible. There, there are great opportunities for them now. Um, like on the surrounding farms, you know, there's a, a few that have, that have got scholarships to university. Yeah. And uh, so, so just be, be able to sort of, for them to have a, a opportunities to do what they want and not have to come back and work on the farm or, you know, uh, I think that's sort of the, the goal. And, well, yeah, I, yeah. I think you know the. It's very different when you're doing that work and you have no other options. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think yeah, there is. I think that is that we we, we like with the, especially with the youngsters. It's trying to just just get get opportunities. You know, there are there are good schools around. We we close enough to town that they're able to get to school easily. So it's not having to walk miles to school. Do your kids go to school with uh, the children of uh, the On the farm? Vineyard? Yeah. No, so the farm kids actually go to an Afrikaans school, which is a oh, little closer. Oh, okay. Our kids go to an English school, which is sort of a little further into town. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, you know, all the schools have got a good mix. I mean, I think the, the, our kids, obviously, growing up English, yeah. would struggle at an Afrikaans school. But, uh, yeah, so they're not at school with the, with the, with the kids on the farm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how has, you know, their, you know, experience of vineyard life, your, yeah. your kids been, been different than yeah. yours and, and do they have any desire to kind of follow you yeah, into the so business? I, I don't know. I, I like, we'll see. I, I think one of the things, again, you know, it's wine. We, we, I think for myself, uh, I would love for one of them to, yeah. to come and take over. But again, unless they love it and have a passion for it, you know, we don't, it's not something... I'll ever 
try and force on them yeah. or, you know, I, I think the same as my parents did. So, but the wine industry is weird, eh? It really, once you've been sort of a little bit involved, it kind of sucks you in. And I oh, think you, you stay involved, you know, it's just one of those things. But uh, yeah, I, would, I hope one day one of them, maybe one of my brother's kids would, you know, would get involved. But yeah, we'll wait and see. At the very least, it stays in the family. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Uh, yeah. I always close with a bit of verse, and I was excited to learn that uh, actually uh, one of your fellow Kulinans yeah. um, is a hugely accomplished um, a generational uh, a South African poet. Uh, that is yeah. Patrick Kulinan. Um, this is a really short uh, uh, bit of, of verse, um, and uh, it's called To Have Love. To have love and then lose it the white hail in the orchard, lying with the leaves it has stripped and the storm moving away. Um, and and I, I like the, uh, there's this great um, Wallace Stevens quote, uh, death is the mother of all beauty. Uh, and and uh, I feel like, uh, you know, this poem uh, embodies a little bit of that. And, um, you know, that speaks to me for the sake of the South African experience. You know, yes. um, it's this, you know, crucible that you were, you were born into, yeah. and you know you have, you know, a particular lens, yeah. uh, you know, for the sake of you know the wine trade, mm. um, and an industry that you know doesn't necessarily lend itself easily to you know uh, social justice initiatives or, or or what have you. I mean, it, it certainly can for the sake of yeah. labor and stuff like that, but. Um, you know, not directly. You know, yeah. wine, wine itself uh, exists in this artistic realm, yeah. um, you know, that um, is highly personal and yeah. individual, but, you know, equally uh, transcendent. Um, you know, what do you hope for the future of the, the industry there? Um, for your, your kids, for your nieces and nephews yeah. that, you know, will hopefully inherit, um, you know, inherit the millions. estate someday, yeah. Yeah, I mean... I think, yeah, I, th I think what I love about wine is, is you know, I, I love tasting wines from a couple of decades ago. It is, it's like unlocking a place and a mm -hmm. time. And uh, I think, you know, going forward, you know, if our estate can still be there in 40, 50 years, and that, that would be amazing. Um, I think for the industry as a whole, I think, you know, South Africa, it's an exciting place. There's a lot happening, but it is, you know, it's a very... The, yeah, there's a lot going on in the country at the moment. Yeah. You know? So it is, it's, it's still uncertain. Um, we have a big part of the population that is really still disenfranchised. And I think now not, not as much as a result, obviously it, it is a result of apartheid, but the current government is, is really not doing their bit to, to help. And uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting time, but I, yeah, I hope the wine, the wine industry can just keep growing. Uh, I think it really is going from strength to strength. I think there's a lot of youngsters coming through um, at the moment, and uh, I think the, the wines are just getting better and better. How do, so, you, how do you feel like it's changed yeah. from, so, you know, you cut your teeth yeah. at Stellenbosch and took over the family estate in yeah. the, um, the so, late aughts? So when I started, I mean, when I, when I finished studying and got sent overseas to work in, in Oz and France, California, wherever I worked... Uh, South Africans were the most prevalent interns. Oh, really? By a long way. Oh, fascinating. So, I mean, we had a whole house full of us in California. Um, well, I mean, you had you benefit France. from the fact that, like, it's, you know, your harvest is kind of uh, on a different timeline yes, than everything exactly. else in the Northern Hemisphere. So you yeah. could do two a year. Yeah. But I think, I think the fact that all these young winemakers, it's like a culture. You finish studying and you travel. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that is... 
bringing so much back to the industry and has brought so much back to the industry. Um, so I think that's, that's awesome that they're doing that. And uh, I think, yeah, exciting sort of uh, aspect to the industry now is, is all the kind of these smaller independent producers that are buying in fruit and making yeah. these really interesting wines, yeah. uh, you know, and they can do that on a, it, it, there's very little barrier to market, you know, they can do that on a smaller budget. And so there's no, they are, it, the wine industry isn't kind of exclusive and limited to yeah. landowners and, you know, people that have got the budget to buy a farm. There are these guys that are independent and, and doing pretty cool stuff. Uh, on a smaller scale, yeah, which I think is benefiting the industry. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. In as much as apartheid was, you know, this apocalyptically racist yeah. regime, it was yeah. equally isolating for, yes. for South Africa. Oh, and, absolutely. Um, you know, it was equally isolating for, you know, it was more yeah. isolating for, you know, people of color in South Africa yes. than it was white South Africans, but it was yeah. isolating for white South Africans as absolutely. well. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and I, I get a sense that, you know, casting that off, especially for people in the wine yeah. industry, was liberating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you just look at how far the industry's come, yeah. you know, the South African industry. Uh, like, we were basically a non-entity in the 80s. Like, we didn't exist overseas. Yeah. Know, people didn't see our wines. Uh, in the 90s, you know, once, once things opened up, there was this big boom. A lot of wine got sent overseas and a lot of it subpar. You yeah. know, it was pretty average, which did a lot of damage to the industry, which took maybe a decade to overcome, but I think now in the last two decades, it's, you know, it's just, it's been an exponential uh, sort of explosion in quality and, uh, and the wines available that, that people can get overseas now. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's been amazing. Yeah. I don't, I, I mean, from a wine industry where the first vines were planted in the 1670s, yeah. you know, we're actually pretty old world to have been kind of as far behind as, as, or as far behind as we are. Is, is crazy, and that's, that's a result of apartheid, but I think to see how far we've come in the last little while is amazing. Well, and I, I'm sure yeah. it can't help but yeah. make you excited yes. uh, for, the, for the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, brilliant. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Um, yeah. Where can people, are you, uh, are you yeah. on the, like the social media uh, so, like platforms? So I'm not, I'm a okay. farmer, so I'm very bad, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, Remhooked okay. is. Who, so manage, who manages the Remhooked account? My sister. Oh, nice, so, yeah, okay, great. She does our, our website, does she, mailing uh, list. Does she purloin Insta. you for like goofy videos? Yeah, or? So, and photos, which okay. I never take. I'm okay. very bad, you know. She's like, "Did you get some photos today?" Usually, no. But uh, I need to get a photo of us, Paul. So. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we're on Instagram and uh, yeah, I, th I think Facebook. Uh, our web you can have a look at our website. I've got a we've got a YouTube channel where I take you through tasting. Oh, that's exciting! Of, uh, of each of the wines. So yeah. every, every one of our wines, you can have a look at that. You're, you have a strong online yeah. presence for a farmer, though. I, I will yeah, say yeah. you've done. <laughs> well, it's my sister. Okay, and okay. it was lockdown. So uh, okay. yeah, 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 we did a lot of we got a lot of stuff going in lockdown. It was a good time, but uh, yeah, not a bad online presence. Brilliant. Um, cool. I don't have the excuse of being a farmer myself. Um, yeah. I'm just the worst millennial ever for the sake of our uh, Instagram presence, but we are, yeah. uh, if you're looking to find us, uh, on uh, the gram at universe in a glass. Uh, as ever, if you want to try these wines, they will both be available at Washington DC's premier uh, and only pasta and wine bar, Reveler's Hour. Uh, which is right across the street from uh, our Line Hotel studios. Uh, as ever, thank you so much for listening, and stay thirsty for more of the universe in a glass.